paper men meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. So here we are with a half hour of commentary and analysis on issues pertaining to the news media, and we hope that you will find it stimulating as some veterans in the field, which is our euphemism for uh, old. Thank you. Uh, yes. <laughs> I've never known whether the word is veterans or veterans. Well, there you go. Well, you're the radio guy. We're print people. That's right. That's right. And we that's know how very, to spell it. We just don't know how to say that's it. That's very nice of you, Judy, to acknowledge that. <laughs> She's hoping that you'll be sweet to her as the program goes along. Alan Shartok is here, Judy Patrick, Ira Fussfeld, and I'm Rex Smith, and we'll talk a little about our experiences as we go along here. In fact, a little bit later in the program, folks, I just want to warn you, we're going to ask you about your favorite journalism movies. So just be thinking about that, if there's a movie you particularly like, because there was a national poll about this, and folks gave their own answers. So we will do the same later on. But first... That's one of those little broadcast things. That's but, first. but first. <laughs> but first. And that's not all. That's not all. First, we actually just need to deal with a correction because we got a letter pointing out that on this show a couple of weeks ago, I apparently said that the journalism program at the College of St. Rose in Albany, New York, is gone. And apparently it is not, in fact. There is still a journalism concentration within the communications department, and they have a couple of professors, and they have students still doing their reporting in the community. Um, and so I do apologize for misstating the facts about the College of St. Rose. How about that? And good news, too. Good news, yeah. You could never be in the Trump administration because he never apologized. <laughs> Trump means never having to say you're sorry, right? Here's another letter, and we invite you, media at wamc.org. Here's a question for us. John writes, I was wondering whether you thought of a co-op model for a newspaper. You were speaking the other day of how the job of a reporter is deemed unattractive to some young folks due to the hours and low pay. What about a cooperative model where the reporters would be part owners of the paper? Could that be a possible way forward? Judy, Vice President of the New York Press Association. Yeah, it's been tried, I think, never really successfully. Reporters just want a paycheck, and they are not wealthy enough to be able to sustain, you know, carrying a paper. I think owning an enterprise like that takes a fair amount of money and sacrifice. And again, it's an interesting concept, but I want the reporters just to be paid well. I want them to be able to do the job and focus on that and not focus on the business of bringing in revenue, spending the money wisely. I just want them to be able to report. Now, yeah. I don't want you to throw up, but I can tell you, I, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but I can tell you that as the former publisher of the Fire Island News. Oh, oh, man, how many years ago was that? <laughs> as a, before they as had roads publisher of the Fire Island, Island Sun, the competitor to the Fire Island News, I can tell you that it is not easy to start an enterprise like that and to keep it going and to have some ownership of it. On the other hand, if you do it, you own it. And if you own it, there's always the possibility that something will come of it financially. 
as an editor who became a publisher, Ira, what do you think? Yes, I think Judy is correct. It's been tried. I don't know of any real successful models. I know the unions often talk about it wanting a bigger seat or a seat at the table. But, you know, in these hard times where so many problems are existing financially, I don't rule out any kind of thing. I don't like it. It doesn't sound like something I'd want to be a part of. But on the other hand, if that meant that a publication would survive versus falling apart, sure, let's try it. But we're sitting here talking about the ecosystem of the past. We're thinking of newspapers. The barriers to entry, as the economists would call them, in journalism are much lower now. You don't have to own a press or even run a press to have good journalism in a community. Right. You just need a website. Right. And, mm-hmm. Or a podcast. You don't need to print the product every day. Alan, so did you end up making a lot of money at the Fire Island, whatever? <laughs> the Fire Island Sun? No. I made very little money. Which uh, is why he works did. in nonprofits. Now, I, I, did not, I did not own it. <laughs> I didn't own it. A oh. bunch of, here's how it started. I'll tell you right oh, now. Oh, boy. Oh, I'm, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There was another newspaper on Fire Island. Ah. Don't you see? Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was... A bunch of very good people, I think, were really ticked off at the way in which that other newspaper was being run. So they all kicked in a little change and created the Fire Island Sun, don't you see? Yes, uh, there's a great I, tradition of that. Right, yeah, that, and that's what reporters can't do. They can't kick in a, even a little bit of change. <laughs> they all, have no change. That's lunch money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there isn't a great track record of that kind of thing succeeding. You know, Yes, this lasted a whole year. Right, about <laughs> uh, summer. 20 years ago, a former Times Union copy editor created a new newspaper in Amsterdam, New York. Remember the Amsterdam Recorder's been there a long time, and they created this thing called The Morning Sun, which had the best slogan of a newspaper because it was follow the morning sun. They all went down to Amsterdam. (laughs) Amster, Amster. You've got it, Rick. Six points. All I know is that it would be a mistake for us to continue to harp on these problems existing only in daily mainstream venerable newspapers because there are financial problems and layoffs all over the place. I was telling Judy before the microphones were turned on, there's a report just this morning as we speak where you've got layoffs at CNN, you've got layoffs at Gannett, Mm -hmm. you've got the Washington Post stopping its print edition of the Sunday magazine, you've got layoffs at CVS Paramount, and I'm probably forgetting, oh, the Meta, the Zuckerberg organization, vacating 250,000 square feet of office space in Manhattan. None of those things are, well, Gannett's newspaper, but the, the financial... And NPR. And NPR announcing that it's going to cut. A hiring freeze, actually, uh-huh. but well, that's... Uh, well, I've always felt that, you know, I get into a certain amount of trouble, especially with you, Rex, when I criticize NPR, but I've always felt that your times, they just don't know what they're doing. And So you would not impose a hiring freeze if you were running NPR? You would just go ahead and deal with the deficit? Well, I would try to anticipate what was coming at me down the road. Mm-hmm. Don't you see? But the point is, or my point is... Uh Uh-oh, Judy just put her glasses on. (laughs) It's just not daily newspapers that have become the poster child for these kinds of cuts. The financial pressures, largely because of the advertising decline across the board, is putting a lot of companies in danger. And a lot of companies are looking at next year, and they're concerned about a potential recession, and they're bracing for that. 
at NPR, there are 137 vacancies they're not going to fill, ending the year with a $20 million deficit, which newspaper editors will say, well, $20 million, but $20 million of what? And so I had to do some research to find out the total and budget. that's why you put your glasses The total budget was $258 million, so that's a pretty significant shortfall. Yeah, it's an 11% cut of its workforce by keeping those positions open. So that's going to have implications for the on-air product. It means that reporters won't be traveling to cover stories as much. You know, the pressure to the downturn in revenues that I was referring to, advertising or underwriting, which is the nice euphemism that public radio uses. I deny that. <laughs> is that uh, so that is a downturn, but you have these extra expenses because of the war in Ukraine, which NPR has been covering marvelously. And that kind of work you have to sustain, but it means you're going to be cutting elsewhere. That's a hard thing. And one of the jobs, they're doing an interesting thing. They're leaving open the position they said that they were going to create called chief content officer, which is what prompted the head of NPR News, Nancy Barnes, to quit. Do you uh, know Nancy Barnes, don't you? I do. She was the editor of the Houston Chronicle, and she's going to become now the editor of the Boston Globe. Wow. Uh, so that's a great job coming from running the NPR newsroom, uh, going back into Is print. Is it a step downward? <laughs> I wouldn't say so. I don't know. That's a hard question. But that's going to have an impact on coverage. But the good thing they're doing, the point I was about to make, is they're not filling that high-level job. And that's what, you know, I always had to try to do myself running a newsroom during my years as editor of the Times Union. You try to leave higher-level positions open so that you still have the feet on the ground as much as you can. You need mm. reporters. The unions would deny that. They, although statistically it's accurate, but the thing you always hear from the union is, why aren't you laying off management people? And the fact of the matter is that you do if it can be explained, if it can be justified. Well, in your own career, Ira Fussell, yes. is that what you did? Yeah, we got layoffs across the board, but you only have relatively few managers, at least in my shop, versus how many people there are in union jobs, and those are the ones that are usually the first to go. But at some point, you reach a limit where you at least need a few editors to look over the copy before you send it out the mm -hmm. door. There is some value in having management. It's just that bloated management is never good. You know, NPR gets most of its money from corporate sponsorship, but second in line are the money they get from the member stations, and I'm surprised they didn't just lean on you guys for more money. Well, you know, they know that they have to proceed at their own risk and that the Alan Chartocks of the world and others will raise certain objections to their doing that. There is only one Alan Chartock of the, the Alan world. The Alan And to Judy's point, as I'm sitting here Except thinking about my it, identical twin brother Louis. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, oh, there we go. The, you, you can see layoffs to management going on all the time already because you've seen so much consolidation. In other words, using my old company in New York State alone, you have one controller. It used to be one controller at every property. Now you have one controller in charge of several newspapers. The same thing with the editor. There's Is that a bad thing, Ira? Well, I would say it's a bad thing and, and because you would like to have one controller who is, who, how would you like, you have a great controller in this place. Yeah. How would you like it if you had to share him with other public radio stations? You, I wouldn't like it and I wouldn't do it. Well, and and the same holds true for publishers. A lot of papers just have one publisher for a number of them. And the, as Ira can speak to, the publisher is often the face of the paper in the community. You need to go to the Rotary Club meetings. And if you've only got, if you got one who's stretched very thin among five communities, they can't do a proper job. Publisher my old newspaper is based in New England. Hmm. And I don't know how often he's here. I've not met him. But when I was publishing a weekly 
newspaper chain in Dutchess County, New York. At the same time I was publishing the daily paper in Kingston, I went usually only once a week to the weeklies. And to Judy's point, I had no presence at all in the community, which is exactly the opposite of what it must be for particularly weekly newspapers. You want the local weekly newspaper publisher to be a person in the community. Not just for public relations purposes, but for those business links that generate revenue, right? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I've been into many Rotary Club meetings (laughs) in my life. And I can't look back, uh, you know. I when mean, was the last time you went to a Rotary? <laughs> well, uh, well, Did they uh, sing? I used to be a Rotary song leader when I was the editor of the paper in Indiana. I'm not surprised, right? Yeah. <laughs> R-O-T-A-R-Y, that spells Rotary. I'm, a, I'm old right. enough to remember Rotary phones. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I digress. But we digress. Yes, you did. All right. We're going to talk now about platforming, which is a term that probably most of us didn't grow up with because platforming, you know, kind of uncomfortable using a noun as a, as a verb. But platforming means giving voice to something, airing, for example, or publishing controversial material just by way of conversation. The opinion editor of The New York Times lost his job two years ago for platforming Senator Tom Cotton when he wrote that uh, American military should be dispersed into the streets of the city to deal with the Black Lives Matter protests. And that was so controversial a topic that the editor of the opinion pages ended up getting forced out of his job at the New York Times. Now comes a question from a left-wing watchdog group called FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy and Reporting, been around for 20-some years, saying we should hold the news media accountable for transphobia because of content, both in television and in print, in which people who are opposed to full rights for transgender individuals, opposed to some of the other questions that deal with the trans community, because those journalists have platformed, have given air to that. So I'm a little uncomfortable with this, yet we don't want to give extra space to any kind of a hate group. So I think that we ought to be torn. It is a tough issue, isn't it, for a journalist? It's a really important issue, and in, in some respects, it's a matter of degree. If you lead your opinion piece or your art, your news article with the idea that you know transgender people are going to do something dangerous to women and children, that is the wrong approach. On the other hand, there is some value in letting the rest of the world see how wrong other people are thinking. Maybe that does perpetuate these notions, or it gives, or or normalizes this kind of behavior, like we're mm-hmm. seeing with any discussion of, uh, you know, the anti-Semitism discussion we're having with Donald Trump's dinner with anti-Semites. I mean, anytime you give a platform to someone who's spewing hate, you do tend to normalize it. And when you talk about normalization, that's interesting because you know I've followed this story. Obviously, I'm Jewish, and it is one of those things that I want to hear about when there is anti-Semitism in the air. But one really wonders whether or not it's productive. When you start allowing anti-Semites to spew their nonsense, does it indicate that there are an awful lot of people in the general population who are anti-Semitic? It's a really interesting question. And I remember when I was a college student, the campus newspaper. You went to college? <laughs> Imagine that. Yes. I, down at some obscure place in Texas. He said sarcastically. But there, I remember the campus paper actually gave a platform, wrote an article about Holocaust deniers who came to campus and were trying to get their point of view 
view across. And it became quite a controversy. Do mm. they deserve even to be mentioned? Or should we just turn our eyes away and say, and ignore them? And is there a freedom of speech issue here that Holocaust deniers deserve, you know, a platform? I think not, but, you know, that's what it is. But I think we all grew up in this business, the four of us, at a time when giving a platform was not called giving a platform. It was called giving both sides to the issue. In other words... If Are you sure you, there were always two sides? Well, that's yeah. the fair question. And I think if I'm understanding the, the issue as Rex posits it, there may not be, and there is not another side to many of these issues. And the question is, do we as media blow our responsibility by not covering it? You know, you don't want to give them a platform. On the other hand, do you not have a responsibility to your readership or your listenership to explain what the issues are? Judy, you have a perplexed so the, look on you. Well, the, there was a lot of coverage, for example, in the last two years about transgender bathrooms in schools. Did we give this too much coverage? Because if you talk to school officials, people would say, yeah, we can deal with this. This is not an issue. We're also seeing it with transgender participation in high school or college level sports. Usually when you talk to the coaches or the, the, the officials, they'll say, this is not a big issue. But the media and a vocal minority will try to make it an issue, and then the media will run with it. So. Yeah, well, you're, I think you're exactly right, and that is so amplified, particularly by Fox News, which is the public relations organ of the Republican Party, the, the right-wing part of the Republican Party. And they overcover this issue and amplify it to make it seem as though this is a crisis in America, and it then gets translated into the public consciousness, and it becomes an issue. It kind of generates the controversy rather than the issue being intrinsically important. But it is skewed, our awareness of it is skewed by the intentionally biased right-wing media, which makes issues out of these things that, as you say, schools could handle themselves. There, there may be somebody listening, Rex, who may not understand that last sentence of yours in which you said intentionally biased. Ah. Um, so do you think that people who are on the other side of any issue are intentionally skewing the... Well, I think Fox News, in its creation was intended to be a voice for the conservative right. And That's people true. who go to work there are not actually legitimate journalists. They are people posing as that in support of Rupert Murdoch's financial gain uh, and the political gains of the right wing. I don't think you can work for Fox News and look at yourself in the mirror and think that you're a genuine, honest journalist. I'm reading this morning as we speak that Fox News has not covered the verdict in the Oath Keepers trial. Amazing. Yeah, Amazing. there you go. That's an example. But, you know, the issue is kind of more importantly grasped when you look at uh, traditionally solid news organizations. The Washington Post has an opinion columnist, for example, named Thomas Wheatley, who wrote about uh, trans issues and talked about society's broader trend toward gender nullification and wrote that traditional gender roles still serve as a deterrent to predatory behavior. Now, some would say that that's objectionable because it is seeming to describe the trans movement, the effort to give trans rights as something that we should fear because it makes things more dangerous if we eliminate traditional gender roles. So that is, I think, the harder thing. If you're an opinion page editor, if you're deciding what kind of content gets picked up in your publication and you just wonder, hmm, should I really platform this or not? 
And I think Judy had it right from the beginning, saying it's kind of a matter of degree, isn't it? Right, and I definitely read that opinion column that way. Mm -hmm. And I, as an editor, I would say, well, we're not running that. I mean, that's what editors are supposed to do, make decisions about these controversial issues. You don't have to give a platform to hate to people who are trying to generate fear, unless it was incredibly well-reasoned, and it really wasn't incredibly well-reasoned. And that's not, by the way, Alan, to your point, aren't there freedom of speech issues? You know, that's not a deterrent to freedom of speech. The freedom of speech is a limitation on the role of government. It is an editor's job to make decisions about what is fairly covered and what is not if you're in a position to make that decision. You mean you've never worked for an editor who you knew... <laughs> I think I've heard this question before. <laughs> you knew was skewed in their opinion and taken great exception to that? I don't think I ever worked for an editor who intentionally distorted news coverage to advance a point of view. Opinion pages editors are supposed to have a point of view, and you get across opinions that you like, but I never was engaged as a reporter in reporting stuff that I thought was intentionally biased. No. Well, you know, Ira, you've been um, running newspapers and making these decisions for a long time. Have you ever said to yourself or to your wife, that's not going in my paper, I don't like it? <laughs> no, I, I don't recall doing that, but I would say to sort of take your side, that an editor can make a difference in a story by where it places it. In other oh, words, it sure. doesn't. it's not that they're not covering it, but it might be below the fold or it might be mm. inside the paper and thus suggesting that it's not as important as other stories. And th there is a certain subjectivity that editors, even the best editors, have to be a part of to run their operations. If you line up 10 newspaper editors right here and say, what's the highlight of what we've been talking about for the last 15 minutes, you'd probably get eight different answers. Fire and, Island Sun. <laughs> but so that, as Judy says, that's what editors are paid for. What Alan is suggesting may occur, but I would say it's in the minority, at least at the mainstream operations. Your comments, folks, media at wamc.org. We would be glad to hear. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Judy Patrick, and Rex Smith here. We're going to talk now for just a second about Washington, D.C., uh, where we do not sit as we are recording this in Albany, New York. But there is an editorial offered by the Boston Globe's saying Joe Biden must hold more press conferences, chastising him for holding so few press conferences by comparison to his predecessors. Is this just whining by the media? Is this being unfair to Joe Biden? Maybe maybe the era of the presidential press conferences, maybe that's an anachronism. I don't know. What do you think? If Joe Biden was good at it, he'd do more of them. I think that he and his team understand that he's prone to trip over his Gaps. own words, and he has a speech impediment, which makes people think he's stupid. And so if he was more articulate, like Obama or John F. Kennedy, who essentially inaugurated these press conferences, they would do them. But he is obviously, he, Biden, has decided there's no real benefit. Now, I, do I think they ought to be more? Absolutely, because a lot of information about the president and about his, his or her policies comes to light. You know, I've never liked those press conferences, and I like them even less in the last few years because it's just bad form. When you, a reporter will ask a question, and then they ask three or four other questions, and they're only supposed to ask one question. Very annoying. Uh, <laughs> the other thing is— One of the that, things that makes people dislike the media. Yeah, 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 it does. You're supposed to ask one or two, maybe, but then they go on for the three or four, and you know, often they don't follow up. And I don't think they're getting any real substantial issues out of the press conferences. Often they're just trying to—they're playing to their audience— they like the idea of being able to ask questions. I mean, they, they have a press briefing every day. I'm okay with that. I know that it's nice to try to nail down the president in a certain position. 
But again, I have never gotten a lot out of the press conferences except annoyance. I'll tell you, as a reporter who sat in a lot of press conferences in my era, it was primarily covering, I remember that. Uh, Mario Cuomo, who was very good at press conferences. But what annoyed me was... Well, Mario uh, was very good at press Yeah, yeah, he was. Some but of the, the reporters, guy... to uh, make Judy's point, reporters were going for their moment of glory and thinking instead of listening to what was being said and following up on that question if you want to they're thinking well how can I get the governor now what can I do mm. and maybe the reason I didn't like it is because I wasn't very good at it I as a reporter I didn't ask those clever questions that seemed to uh, generate headlines or made myself the object of the attention. You know, one of the great things about press conferences is that internally it helps the administration establish what their lines are because there are competing interests in any administration. You know, the federal government is huge. The executive branch has a lot of different points of view. And when the president articulates something, that sets the stage for decision-making. Well, except in Biden's case, he frequently has to walk back things that he says <laughs> in press conferences. Oh, well. Did uh, Trump have a lot of press conferences? It's hard for me to remember because he Who? had so Sorry? former President Donald Trump. It's so oh, hard. him. It's so hard for me to remember because there were so many extended tirades about certain things that I didn't. I can't remember whether that was a press six. conference. He did uh, six uh, during his first two years compared to 21 for Barack Obama. Wow. And actually, the first two years of uh, Biden, it's 11. So Biden is actually doing twice as many almost as Trump. How about that? But, but Trump half was as many on TV as all of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he found a way to get around it. Yeah, he would shout things as he's going he to have Han Hannity would have him on three times a week. Oh, yeah. And not, and not ask any questions. He's here talk. Okay, yeah. we promised that we would give us uh, your favorite journalism movies. Now, I hope we've had a chance to think about this. Judy, do you have any uh, favorite journalism movie? You know, so so many of the old movies, those from the 30s and 40s and 50s, give a distorted view, a bad view. Maybe that's how journalism worked, but I hated the ethics of those older ones. So I'm a big fan of Spotlight. I felt it did a really good job of showing investigative journalism and how a newsroom really works. Ira. Well, I don't know how this, I don't remember who did the survey, but the... the Pointer Institute Pointer survey. Institute. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Pointer Sisters. <laughs> Honorable mention to Citizen Kane, perhaps the greatest movie of all time, regardless of the subject. Don't get it. But I did like one of the old-timer movies, Deadline USA with Humphrey Bogart, and that very corny. And then the final scene when he calls up the gangster and he says, what's that noise? And he says, that's the press baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's not press, baby. That's great. Alan, do you have a favorite? I have so little to add here, as in almost everything else. Was there the a Gunsmoke episode? <laughs> <laughs> there was. <laughs> Milburn Stone saved the editor. How about His Girl Friday? Doesn't that have that well, from I, 1940? I the, yeah, you know? that was good, but I like the more recent iteration, the front page, which was the same was movie good. with yeah. essentially the same dialogue. And how you can discuss this without talking about all the president's men. Of course. Which, in oh. my view, if I had to take a modern picture, sure. although, God, it's 40 years old, Maybe 50 years old. Seems like yesterday. But I like the fact that a 1994 movie called The Paper, yes. where Glenn Close plays the role of editor, is it? Who is her she uh, was, managing Robert editor? Robert Duvall was above and, her, and, and she was like the city editor. A, but I remember when the managing editor had to call the editor and wanted to pretend that he couldn't hear because he didn't want to listen to what the editor was saying. <laughs> he crumpled up the paper before the telephone, like... <laughs> as though that was static on the line. I did that once with Andrew Cuomo when he was calling. I didn't want to talk to him. Honest, really? goodness, honest truth be told. Great, okay, got to go. Thanks, folks, for joining us on The Media Project. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith. Gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you for joining us this week once again on The Media Project.
publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.